Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Dan Zarella. He's award-winning social media scientist at HubSpot and author of four books, including the one we're going to talk about mostly today, The Science of Marketing, When to Tweet, What to Post, How to Blog, and Other Proven Strategies. So welcome back, Dan. Thank you. So, you know, anytime somebody adds the word science uh, in the title and calls themselves a social media scientist, I, I, we have to talk about research methods, right? So <laughs> tell, yep. me, tell yep. me a little bit about what you do that, that takes us over into the arena of science. So there's a, actually a number of different research methods that I use for the data in the book. Um, some of it is survey data, right? Like if there is not a great source of large-scale, quote-unquote, big data about a certain topic, but I really want to talk about that topic, or what I'm interested in isn't is about you know how people think, how people feel about a certain topic. Then then I'll do surveys or focus groups. Generally speaking, that's not my favorite source of data though, because people don't always know why they do what they do, and, and they don't even really know what they do a lot of times, right? Depending on how you phrase a survey and all that sort of stuff. So. That, but that's that's a that's a part. Some of the data in the book is based on surveys. Usually, I use that as a uh, a sort of direction finder. I'll do a survey about some new area that I want to study, and from that, I'll find interesting places to look for qualitative or quantitative data. Rather, um, the rest of the data is of that quantitative sort. So I mostly use APIs, publicly available APIs. Uh, to gather large data sets. So, for instance, about Twitter, I have uh, several different um, databases, uh, you know, into the, the, the millions and hundreds of millions of rows uh, of tweets. Uh, you know, for Facebook, I'll grab, you know, all the posts in the top 10,000 Facebook pages. Uh, and so a lot of the data <clears throat> comes from, the vast majority of my data comes from publicly available APIs that I just write scripts to grab and, and stick into a database. Awesome. And then, and then the other, and then there's one other category of data, and that's you know when, like when I want to study email data, email is not a really publicly available data source. So, you know, I work at HubSpot. We have we have customers that do email. I have friends at a company called Mailchimp, and we'll they'll they'll lend me some of their data. So there's a few different places where I do use sort of proprietary data sources, data sources that that I've gotten either from you know HubSpot or from another company that's that's friends of ours. So, so I get asked this question a lot, um, and I think there's a lot of, uh, in fact, I get, you know, which is one of my funnest things to do is to get to go talk to MBA students and college uh, classes about marketing. And, and, you know, a lot of times people will ask me what, uh, what the most important skill a marketer, you know, needs to have. And I, I'd, I'd love to hear your take on if, if you have an opinion on that question. Um, I, you know, I think my, my, the opinion that I have, I think, is, that's most interesting related to that is not necessarily what the most important trait is because, you know, of all the successful and great marketers that I've seen, have known, uh, you know, a lot of them have various different, we call them in HubSpot superpowers, you know, different, like mine is being a, a nerd essentially, right? Um, and, and so, you know, you don't, I don't think you need to have necessarily one particular skill to be a, a great marketer, though I do think... Um, that it is becoming increasingly important for marketers to be uh, both technical and analytical. So, uh, you know, I think the ability to at least do, 
you know, some, some cursory HTML, potentially JavaScript can be very, very helpful to a, uh, to, to an online marketer. Uh, and then additionally, you should know your way around an Excel spreadsheet. You know, pivot tables shouldn't scare you at the very least. Um, clearly, if you can code and stuff like that, that's, that's wonderful. But I don't think everybody needs to do that. Um, I think those are, it's always been important to be able to write and to communicate and to be kind of creative. But I think that more technical and analytical skills are increasing in importance. Yeah, I, I think I'm actually my the next book I'm working on is a sales book actually, and one of the things I talk about is the need for salespeople to be extremely flexible uh, these days. So, so to have sort of a myriad of skills, and it used to be enough that uh, you know the the social skill and the going out there and 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 digging up leads and you know building relationships, you know that that in many cases used to be enough, and I think that a lot of times now the marketer or the the salesperson that understands technology and that is able to bring that with social skills i i think is actually uh where we're probably headed is is that flexibility to you know jump from to be comfortable in a number of settings yeah absolutely i i, I think you know people get really really good at certain jobs uh, in certain uh, you know abilities when they can blend them with other abilities that are you know, potentially on the face value, kind of unrelated. So, you know, where I do marketing and, and I use my programming ability to do research, um, sort of combining my, my storytelling and my creative side with my analytical side, that's where, you know, I've found the most success. And I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think sales folks, marketing folks, you know, when, when we learn to operate with sort of other modalities, I guess, um, you know, that's when you see awesome things start to happen. Yeah, it's the, it's the engineer that can sell. And that's a dangerous combination. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah, and and honestly, that that's kind of how I, I I see myself as a I use I use a, I'm a storyteller, but I use data to tell me stories. Yeah. Is 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 what my is kind of how I see my my work. Yeah, and that that leads right into the next question I was going to ask is do do you feel that every decision you know from a marketing standpoint should be based on numbers? Um. <clears throat> Generally speaking, uh, usually if you were asking me that question, I would say yes. Uh, however, uh, the, the reality of it is, is that <clears throat> certain decisions should be ideally based on data that takes a long time to gather, right? So, you know, it, it helps about we sell a, a, a software package to, to large companies, and that sales process can take, you know, a couple of months. And so, you know, as a marketing team, we look to judge our leads, we look to judge what we're doing. Ideally, we should be looking at the bottom line, the ROI, but that's a month, couple of months out before we start to see, you know, the, the, the results on that. So sometimes, it, it, you know, you can't move fast enough if you're only using data. And then the other case where I think you want to not necessarily forget about data, but move without it, at least at first, um, is when you're trying new stuff, right? Because the one thing that data isn't <clears> – <throat> very, very good at doing um, in a marketing context is identifying uh, new types of content, new kinds of marketing campaigns, things like that. That's the kind of thing that, you know, creative thinking and creative thinking processes can really, can really help with. So <clears throat> with that said, when you do experiment with something new and when you do try something new, use the numbers to back up and to question whether or not it worked. But don't be afraid to do something new just because you don't have data yet. Yeah, yeah, data can only predict if you've got something fed into it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 a huge part of marketing, especially now, is got to be doing new things, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and 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 so you need to be creative and flexible and willing to try new things, even if you don't have the data to back it up yet. But watch the data as you launch it and and, and monitor it closely. 
So people ask me questions all the time, and so I, I generally uh, turn to my guests and say, well, I'll see what they say to this. Uh, today, somebody asked me this. Uh, what's one online marketing strategy that even savvy business owners or marketers overlook? Um, you know, lately I've become a huge fan of Pinterest. Uh, as a as a as a as a sort of social media channel, um, and I, I don't know that I would call it overlooked, except, but it doesn't it doesn't quite get the same you know the same play as as, as Twitter or Facebook does. But right. traffic traffic from Pinterest converts at an amazing an alarming rate really, um, because because Pinterest is such an aspirational site, people are pinning things that they want to do, buy, build, create, cook they're pinning things that they want basically. And so as a, as a company that, especially if you're, you're e-commerce, right? right. Um, as a company that's selling something, if you're B2C e-commerce, I don't think that there are too many other, um, you know, social channels where that buying behavior and that, that, that buying psychology is in play quite like it is with Pinterest. Would you say that, and, and of course you could probably make a case that this would apply eventually to every business, but would you say that that is particularly true if you, have a a visual product or or a visual something that's a business that is very visual i mean is that it seems to me that those are the businesses that in in certain niches particularly they're doing really well there yeah I, you know i think in social media in general uh companies that have a very i, I think all companies can have a visual product you, it just takes more work to find the interesting visuals for them um, but if your company, if, you, if your product, your service lends itself to, to visuals very easily, then you have a much easier time with social media, not just in Pinterest. I mean, in Facebook also, um, you know, and, and, and Instagram and all these other, these other sites, Tumblr, you know, you're going to have a much better, um, a much better time just because it's easier to, to produce visual content, which does extremely well in, in social media. Um, one of my favorite topics though, is so I do, um, I speak at PubCon regularly, like one or two times a year. And, the first day of PubCon is actually master's training, and so it's like an extra day, and there's only a few speakers, and we have much longer periods, and we get to ask questions. They get, you know, there's, there's a lot more of a workshop kind of environment than, than just a you know, up-on-stage sort of environment. Um, and one of my favorite things to do is to, after my presentation, because <clears throat> most of the speakers are also in the audience, so you can ask them questions too, and we can all have a big discussion. And one of my favorite questions to ask uh, the audience is, raise your hand and tell me if you have a what you think is a boring company or a boring client and let's all brainstorm different interesting ways to make content and you know so some people are, are better at it than others but um you'll be surprised once you start brainstorming different ways to make stuff um you know creative out of what's originally a boring you know what was quote unquote a boring client or a boring company um you know, there's there's a surprising amount of stuff you can do. Well, I'm going to borrow that because I, I speak at a lot of associations. You know, pest control yep. associations, siding manufacturer associations, and and yep. uh, you know sometimes they really come away, you know, thinking stuff like that. So uh, um, I'm I'm going to borrow that and let let people uh, brainstorm. Uh, uh, and see yeah, it, and it really. And it's really helpful, you know. Um, my my wife Allison Zarella is like the queen of this. She's she's a lot better at that than I am for whatever reason. It's just how kind of her brain works. Um, but you could give her any any topic, and she's she'll go off for hours on interesting pieces of content you could create about it. Um, but I think a lot of people have that sort of ability. You just kind of got to, you know, challenge them to brainstorm stuff. So do you, and I didn't prep you for this, so you, you can tell me that if, you, if you don't have one at the ready, but do you have any, any kind of really telling case studies where data-driven 
decisions, and I know you share a few in the book, so maybe from the book, where, where data-driven decisions, you know, really made a difference? I mean, <clears throat> can you illustrate that? Um, you know, not necessarily specifically off the top of my head. I do know that, so at HubSpot, we, um, you know, we send a, uh, we have a large email list. So we send a bunch of email about our content. Uh, one of the findings that I found with email is that the, the weekends can work very, very well, uh, for sending, uh, email. Uh, and so when we experiment with it, sometimes it works amazingly, sometimes it doesn't, um, but that's the kind of that's the kind of um, feedback I get on that on that piece of data quite a bit is that you know I didn't expect this to work but I tried it uh, and it, and it worked really really well for me right and, and I think that's that's the biggest takeaway with the data like what I produce is not if I tell you that the weekends are good for emailing it doesn't mean only email on the weekends it means experiment with emailing on the weekends because there's a likely chance that you're not at all right now. And so a lot of the, you know, the, the great examples and the great feedback I hear is about stuff like, you know, I hadn't been doing this, but because of your data, I experimented with it and it worked brilliantly. So now I do it every once in a while, right? Um, an- another, piece, another piece of data that I hear that about is about the, the 25% of the way through where I found that, that links that are put about 25% of the way into a tweet, so sort of in the first quarter of a tweet, uh, actually have a higher click-through rate than, than links put in the more traditional place, which is at the end of the tweet. And you'll see people experiment with it, and they're like, I don't, and I don't have a great reason as to why that works, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'll see people experiment with it, or I'll, I'll ask people, you know, have you experimented with this? And they'll say, yeah, and it worked. Well, we don't know why necessarily. Um, but, yeah, but it worked. Huh. You, you know, what's one of the things, and I think this is a um, principle that you follow a lot of times, is, is you know, when, when people, everybody, all the pundits start saying Wednesday morning's the best day to send email or Tuesday at 9 a.m.'s the best day, and, and it kind of becomes the generally accepted principle, it sure creates some opportunities yep. for, like you said, sending on Sunday, <laughs> you know, because nobody yeah. else is doing it, too. Yeah, I, I call it contra-competitive timing, um, and, and I find it throughout. I, I talk about it uh, quite a bit in this book and my previous book, but um, you know, I, I find it in a lot of different places because the thing is when you talk to a marketer and you say, okay, wh- when's the best day to email or when's the, you know, the best time to tweet or what's the best time to talk to somebody on Facebook, the, the first place that most marketers go in their mind is, okay, let me try to figure out when the most people are on Twitter or like when Twitter is the most active or when Facebook is the most active. But then if you take that just a step further, you realize that's backwards, right? You don't necessarily want to speak when the whole room is the loudest. I always tell the story that, like, there's, um, you know, imagine you're at a, a party and you can, it's super loud and you can barely hear the person right in front of you. Uh, and so you start telling a story, and it, but you have to yell the, the, the story, right, because you can't be heard. Um, and then, but you know how sometimes occasionally crowds just get really quiet for a second? Um, and so, you know, and then suddenly everybody hears this story about how you wet the bed until you were 16 because you're screaming it, right? <laughs> so that, that's, I think, kind of how contra-competitive timing can work because a lot of times you find Twitter, Facebook, email, you know, these different places um, that when you publish content on these off-peak times, you're catching people when they're getting bombarded with less other information, right? I get so much email during the week, I don't read very much of it. I have priority inbox, and I probably only even read half of that, right? On the, on the weekends, however, I feel so unloved because I get so little email, and I read everything, right? I, I, somehow I got myself on some fractional private jet email list somewhere along the lines, and I read that. I, have, I don't, you know, I'm not going to spend, you know, 
thirty thousand dollars to go from 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 Raleigh to wherever, you know, some little short leg, open leg trip. But uh, I, I read the emails because I don't get that much email uh, on the weekend. So experimenting with contra competitive timing, um, I find has done has done very well for me and for for other people who've read my data. Well, and I really find too, it depends on the intent of the message too. I mean, there there are certain types of messages that. I'm more likely, a great example, our, our mutual friend Chris Brogan sends out a, a Sunday morning uh, email that half the time is just goofy ramble. Um, but I'm more yeah. in the mood to read goofy ramble <laughs> on Sunday morning than I'm going to put yeah. up with it on, on, on Monday. And I, I think it's a, you know, it has something to do with the context as well. Yeah, I mean, Monday can be a tough day in general just because people are kind of getting back into the week right. and they're getting they're, they're inundated with work stuff. But, but yeah, the content type can also, uh, can also play a big part in it. Yeah, there's another topic that I find fascinating that you cover in the book, combined relevance. You want to kind of lay that Yes. Out? So <clears throat> the best way to explain the concept of combined relevance is to tell a story. Uh, and I believe I told – I don't think I told this story in the Science of Marketing book. It was in my, my third book, The Zarellis Hierarchy of Contagiousness, which is a little, little tiny little book. <clears throat> but – uh, years ago, I think it would be six, seven years ago now, back when dig, D-I-G-G dot com, uh, was what Reddit is now, essentially. Um, it was a social news site, and I was experimenting with it, you know, you know, trying different things, seeing what would work. And, you know, I was actually in the shower one day, and I was thinking to myself, what if somebody made a USB absinthe spoon, right? Now, uh, absinthe is, if you're not familiar, it's like this turn-of-the-century alcoholic drink. It's, it's gross. It's awful. I had some in Prague once. It's nasty. It's like a hundred million proof, right? right? And it tastes like a knees, so it's like, it's, it's, it's terrible. And to make it more palatable, you have to add sugar to it. So they made these fancy slotted spoons back in the Victorian era, and they have all these little designs on them, and it's got a little notch in the, the handle of the spoon. So you, set the, you put an absinthe glass down, you put the spoon over it, you put a sugar cube on top of the spoon, and if you're Johnny Depp in the movie from hell, you light the sugar cube on fire because that's more dangerous looking. But generally what you actually do is you pour cold water over the, the ice cube till it melts, and it forms what's called the louche in the, the glass of absinthe. Um, and so I got out of the shower, registered usbabsinthespoon.com, uh, photoshopped the USB drive on the back of an absinthe spoon. Uh, didn't say what it did, just posted this really cryptic message like, they said we couldn't do it. Like, who said I couldn't do what exactly? And, you know, now tell us why you're cool enough to get one of these, these testers, one of these USB absinthe spoons. Uh, it made the front page of Dig easily. It's probably the easiest piece of content I've ever seen go to the front page of Dig. Um, <clears throat> there was 500 comments in 24 hours. Uh, it was covered by all the major gadget blogs, Gizmodo and Gadget. Um, you know, every once in a while, people will do the weirdest gadget segment, weirdest US, USB gadgets stories, and it'll, it'll get included. Um, I was getting, I got a call from a small town news station that does weirdest gadgets, like a segment, uh, and I had to be like, do this, you know, there is no spoon. This, this, this never existed. Um, but the point is there's a lot of people who are into both gadgets and absinthe, right? And so these are two, like if you picture a Venn diagram, you would immediately think that the circles don't cross, right? Because, because gadgets and absinthe seem, you just feel like they couldn't be farther away from each other. But if you look at the actual the people who reacted, apparently there is a big overlap of, of sort of nerds who are into geeky things. And then people who, it's like a steampunk kind of thing, right? They're also into you know, turn of the century alcohol and it's kind of making a comeback. And so when they saw this, when somebody who was into both of these things saw this content, they were like, wow, this was made exactly for me because this is two weird interests mixed together. Uh, and, and it's right up my alley. Right. Um, and, and so that's an interesting tactic that I often recommend to marketers, uh, to use because, 
when we're marketing to an audience, we have to remember that the audience isn't just interested in what we're trying to sell them. They, they have other, they're real humans, right? And they have other interests, right? So I'm really into beer, right? So, so if people, if somebody were to write an article, you know, marketing lessons learned from the world of beer, right? Or, you know, th then I would, people would send that article to me a lot of times. I'm also really into zombies. And so anytime anybody writes a marketing lessons learned from zombies article, I get sent that a million times because I tell people, audiences that I'm really into zombies. In fact, I spoke at a conference once, and by the time I got home, somebody had sent me a, a zombie uh, mad scientist action figure, right? Um, and so as a marketer, we can look at our audience and try to figure out what else are they into, right? What, what other things, you know, interest them, and how can I blend that seemingly distinct interest with what I'm trying to talk to them about? So like last year, Inbound, at our, our HubSpot's conference, uh, which comes up, it's like the end of the summer, um, Cindy Lauper played. Because we know, you know, the, the age range of a lot of our, our customers and a lot of our, 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 our audience. And Cindy Lauper fits perfectly into that. Uh, and so it's a seemingly distinct interest, but people loved it, right? Because when we blended Cindy Lauper and inbound marketing people, they're like, wow, this is made just for me, you know? Yeah. You, you know, as I heard you tell that story about Absinthe, the, the only time I've ever seen anybody order that was uh, some folks from Mashable at CES in Las Vegas. So I think you're... Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right it's, on. <laughs> it's become a thing. It's become a thing. Um, here in Las Vegas, there's several places that have like big absinthe collections. Um, I, I saw a bunch of it in New Orleans. It's there's a, there's a it's it's becoming trendy now, and it like it got re-legalized recently. So um, you know, it's 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 sort of in the public eye, and it is kind of nerdy. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna stick with my beer too. So um, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Another topic you talk about a lot and and is one of those that you know how especially when social media first came out there was like all these rules um yep. that, you know you couldn't do this and you weren't supposed to do that and and it was all about this <laughs> um and one of the things you couldn't do was have a call to action or sell in social media and yeah. uh, I I've certainly said that, yes, you can gain permission to do that, just like you can anywhere um but I'd love to hear uh, your your spin uh with data on that. So what I, th I think is most interesting about it is that prior to – so I never really was a marketer prior to the advent of the web. So I just kind of grew up with the web and social media as a marketer. <clears throat> but it's my understanding that prior to the web – and I've read you know, books and stuff written by, by folks who were offline marketers um, – Calls to action were really big back in the day, essentially, right? Like if you want somebody to do something, you have to ask them to do it or, you know, always be closing in the, in the sales world. Um, and so it seems to me kind of weird that when we made the move to social media, everybody just forgot about that. And suddenly it became, um, you know, a uh, day class to, to, to ask people to do something. Um, and so I've done a, a bunch of research, um, most famously on the phrase, please retweet. Uh, please retweet works. It just does. You, you get, I, I forget what the numbers are exactly off the top of my head, but tweets that have the phrase please retweet in them uh, get a lot more retweets than tweets that do not have that phrase in it. Right? It, it just works. Now, I wouldn't do it all the time, but, but, it's, but you know, use it when you think you have something good. If you look at Facebook, uh, Facebook posts that say the word like get more likes. Facebook posts that say the word comment get more comments, and Facebook posts that say the word share get more shares. Asking people to do things uh, is powerful, and, it, and it, that's how people are motivated to do things. And it, it just seemed silly to me that when we went to social media, we completely forgot about it. And one of my favorite 
sort of bits of, of academic research on the t- subject um, was done by a researcher at a university of Connecticut named Irving Kirsch. Uh, and he did, he was, he mostly studies uh, hypnosis. Uh, and he took, say, I'll say a hundred uh, suggestible people. So people who can be hypnotized and he broke it into 50 and 50. I don't know if the number was actually a hundred, but just for argument's sake, and he took 50 people and he put them under full hypnotic trance, you know, with the, 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 I don't know, however, you know, with the spinny spiral thing or with the pocket watch or whatever. Um, and he gave them a hypnotic trance. And that hypnotic trance suggestion was to uh, take a stack of 30 postcards and mail one back every day for a month. Right. And then the other 50 people, he did not hypnotize. He just asked them nicely. Can you please send these back every day for a month? Uh, that group, the second group, sent back more postcards. Huh. So social, with at least at least with suggestible people in lab environments, social requests are just as powerful as hypnotic trances, right? So it seems really silly to me that that you know we go to social media, we go to Twitter and Facebook, and suddenly you know we shouldn't ask for things. And the funny thing is, if you, if you look at a lot of the folks who who say you know don't sell, don't use calls to action, if you go to their page, they generally have a follow me on Twitter button, which is kind of a call to action, but yeah, yeah. I digress. Well, you, you know, what's funny about some of this, too, is that, um, and, and I think what makes it challenging and why data is so important in, in a lot of this is that there are things that you will ask people and they say, oh, no, I hate those. I would never subscribe to a newsletter because of drop-down box. I hate those things, right? And, oh, yeah. And, and then we turn around and do it. And so that's why I think sometimes uh, asking people or getting generally accepted opinions will really lead you astray because I, you know, I've seen it on my side. I, I get, you know, I get three and four hundred percent more opt in because I use a smart, you know, pop up box. Yeah, that's and my my experience is 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 exactly the same. I, you know, I've I've more than doubled my email subscriptions based on my my pop over box, however you want to call it. Um, and my bounce rate is actually, you know, is not higher. It might be a tad lower even, right? Um, and, and yeah, and that's that's why when I said at the beginning of the, the conversation that I'm not a huge, huge fan of survey data because people don't know why they do it or what they do a lot of times, right? And when you ask somebody a question like that, they're telling you the answer that they want to believe about themselves, right? right. So if you say, right. are, you, are you affected by marketing? Everybody goes, no, no. Well, then why do you work in marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, and so I've been trying to come up with a great way to do this at, um, at presentations, you know, cause I do like social proof experiments and stuff at presentations. And I've been, I've been trying to come up with a great example because there's gotta be a question where you could ask the audience, raise your hand if whatever. And then just by the number of people that raise their hands, you can tell that obviously people don't answer the right way. The best one I could come up with is raise your hand. If you believe you're above average at your job and about 70 to 80% of people raise their hands. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's great. Obviously, um, yeah. It, it, you mentioned at the beginning of this um, APIs and some things that people are maybe even going. I don't know what that is. What what for the the basic person that just wants to know a little more about what's the best data post? Uh, you know, how do I get more likes? I mean, some of the things that you talk about. What you know? What what are some what are some tools that we all ought to have? You know, as either browser extensions or, or actual apps or, or services. Do you have a couple you like to recommend? 
I do, and, and so I, I want to preface that with with a sort of caveat here. And so the the, the, the data that I produce, like in my books and, and on my webinars and things, um, is large data sets, right? Like it's, so, it's millions and millions of rows, and your your particular audience might respond the same way, it might not, right? And so I kind of look at marketing science like medical science, where research is done on thousands of subjects, and they find the best courses of treatment that work for most people, and doctors apply those and. Individual cases first. If they work, they work great. If they don't, they try the next one. And so that's kind of how marketing data is. So if you read some of my research, experiment with it. If it doesn't work, that's that's. It's not that you're doing something wrong. It's just that that's how the data works. Um, and so with that in mind, the best data is obviously your own data. So I've actually released a couple of tools that I think are super awesome to produce the kind of reports that I generate on huge data sets, but you can generate on more customizable levels. The first one is uh, TweetCharts.com. And what that allows you to do, if you go to tweetcharts.com, you can put in a username, you can put in a hashtag, you can put just a keyword in, you can even put in a URL, like a domain name or like a full URL, and it will give you a report of a whole bunch of different kind of data. You have to run it to see all the different data, all pie charts and, and bar graphs and stuff of that search, um, that Twitter search. So it'll tell you sentiment and, you know, gender and hashtag and question inclusion, all that kind of awesome stuff, right? Cool. Uh, the next the next tool is retweetlab.com. Uh, and what that tool does is allows you to put in buddy's account, right? So I can run you know, yours, John, or yeah. you can run mine. Um, and what, it, but basically if I run my account, it shows me say, you know, um, it'll say 90-something percent of my tweets don't contain a hashtag, but the tweets that do contain a hashtag get a lot more retweets than the ones that don't. So maybe I should maybe I should experiment with using hashtags. And there's a bunch of I forget the actual number. I think there's like nine or ten different uh, criteria that that tool looks at. But so between those tools, I tried to do my best to take all the analysis that I do, sort of custom on large data sets, and allow people to do it uh, on their own data more specifically. Very cool. Well, Dan, thanks so much for uh, taking some time out uh, today. Uh, I, I know that uh, we'll bump into each other uh, uh, in August and. Uh, in Boston, but uh, I appreciate everything you're doing. And I, I really, you know, I asked you that question, the most important skill a marketer can have early on. And I, I really, you know, for a lot of marketers, it, it is to start getting a little, at least a little more friendly with the numbers, <laughs> because I, I do think that uh, a lot of marketers make bad decisions and waste a whole lot of money because they don't even look at the basic, basic uh, stuff of what they're doing. Yep. Yep. Cool. Right. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Dan. T take care. We'll see you out there.